We are continuing on in our series in the book of Genesis called New Beginnings 2.0. And this word Genesis means beginning. And the beginning was amazing. Everything was as it was meant to be. Life was good. It was paradise. Then paradise was lost. And what happened is that Adam and Eve fell for the trick that they were better off without the king of Eden. And they were dead wrong because as soon as they decided that, a great separation happened between them and God, and they were expelled from Eden from this lost and hidden land today of paradise, and they were thrown out into the wilderness to wander around, and life as it was meant to be was gone. And we feel the weight of this loss every single day. The tragedy of what happened with the tragedy of children getting sick, the tragedy of a virus, of losing your job, of heartbreak, of whatever it might be for you, we're feeling the weight of this tragedy every single day. And this tragedy, it will do something to us. It will stir in us a longing to get back to Eden. And that longing is there and we, the problem, can't get back. There's this strange place in Genesis 3 where we are told that an angel with a flaming sword is guarding the tree of life. And then Adam and Eve are expelled from Eden, unable to get back because of this angel and this flaming sword keeping them out. But God promises to Adam and Eve that from them, from their seed, will come a child who will be the hero that rises up, that brings them back to the garden that they are so longing to get back to. So the search for the hero begins in Genesis. And we see failed attempt after failed attempt from Cain to Noah. And what begins to happen is God goes from being a memory to a myth to completely forgotten. And that is where Abraham comes on the scene. That's where we're picking up today. And God says to Abraham, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And I will bless you and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now there are strong hints that the place where Abram is going is this lost land of Eden. And over time, they continue to search for the king and they don't get one. And Abram is going to this lost land, but before he gets there, he has to meet a mysterious king. Today is so cool. Today, we meet this mysterious figure that causes Abram to respond with an irresponsible sacrifice. So two things will make you irresponsible. Love and worship. Love and worship. So love and worship worship will make you sacrifice in a way that seems absolutely reckless. So when you meet someone you love, you make all these sacrifices. You climb any mountain, you cross any sea to try to get to that person. Same thing as when you worship something. Our love and our worship are woven together. So when you worship something or someone, you find yourself making sacrifices for that person or thing. So what we have here is love worship and sacrifice all woven in together as one. 
So you can do this with anything. You take, you worship success, you will climb any mountain, cross any sea to get to success. If you long for comfort, you will make yourself uncomfortable so that you might eventually achieve the comfort that you long for. Same thing with control, same thing with image, same thing with looks, same thing with money, whatever it is, whatever you want to put there. Here's the deal. We all have a hidden, mysterious king that we are allowing to rule us. But today we see that we have settled for a lesser king. And in the story of Abraham, he sets out on this journey, and along the way he meets a king unlike any other, and this king, he gives them a gift, and then Abram responds with a sacrifice, with worship. So the, the key question for you today is, who is this mysterious king? Have you met him? And have you responded in worship? So here are our verses. We're going to read Genesis 14, 17 through 24. Here's what it says. After his return, now this is talking about Abraham, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, son of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Least you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So, Abram has just met two kings. There's a lot of kings involved. In fact, there's like nine or ten kingdoms, kings involved here. But Abram, through a series of events, comes across this absolutely unique king that is unlike any other. And this king comes out of nowhere. He comes with bread and wine and has a meal with Abram. His name is Melchizedek. And this strange figure shows up in the Bible three, only three times, right here, in the book of Psalms and in Hebrews 7. And while he barely shows up in the Bible, and all of the appearances seem to be pretty random, we find that he plays an incredible role in the story of Christianity. Sometimes, here's what happens. Writers, let's say there's a writer and he's writing this massive novel, ten novels, all in one massive story, this story of these ten novels coming together, and here's what the writers often will do. In book one, they'll write about this mysterious figure that kind of shows up, does a few things, and then disappears. Book four, this figure shows back up again, and then in book seven, shows back up again, and then in book ten, what we find is that this figure was actually working behind the scenes the whole time, and he rises up, and we find that he ends up being the hero of the entire story. That is what we have here with Melchizedek. And we find that there has literally been no one like him to walk the earth. He is completely unique. In Hebrews, we are told that he has no beginning or end. He has no genealogy, no father or mother. We do not know where he came from and where he, where he went. He just appeared. And 
Here's the other wild thing about him. He's both a king and a priest at the same time. Now you might say, well that's not as cool as him being having no beginning or end, but it actually might be cooler. Because during that time, you either had to be a priest or a king, but you couldn't be both. Why couldn't you be both? Because a king's job was to bring justice and judgment. But the priest's job was to bring forgiveness to, for those who've done wrong. So it's like being arrested by a cop, but then you find out that that same cop is your lawyer. It doesn't work. It's a violation of the way the system works. There's conflict there. It's a violation of justice. See, a priest is like a social worker or an advocate. Other people, if you meet someone that's a social worker, what you'll find is that they're very priestly, they're very caring, and they're not coming at you with judgment, but they're coming at you with care. An advocate or a social worker or a priest is like a mother to you. A mother who would approach their child who was wayward. They would approach them like a child, like, like their own child. That's what a priest does. A king is like a judge. They bring justice, and they have to look at every situation objectively. A mother never looks at their child objectively, but completely subjectively. That is what a mother does, and that is what a priest or an advocate does. Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. So this is a violation to the system that God has set up, and the original readers would have seen this, and they would have been shocked at how Melchizedek could be both a priest and a king. Now, Remember, he's a priest king who has no beginning, no end, no genealogy, no father or mother. We don't know where he came from, and we don't know where in the world he went. So we have to ask, what in the world is going on here with this Melchizedek? There are two options. Either Melchizedek is a type of Christ, or Melchizedek, are you ready for this, is a pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, he is Christ. Come. He's the Christ come before he became man, somehow, someway, somehow this mystery is right here happening to Abram. So first, so he's either a type or Christ. So if he's a type, a type in the Bible are like figures, we've got kids in the background, so that's what that is. It's not me whistling through as I speak. So often, here's what happens, if we think of types, often what happens is there are people in the Bible that serve as types of Christ. So Abraham is a type. Look at Abraham's story. So he leaves his home to go out into the unknown. He's set up between this town called Ai and the other town called Bethel. Ai means ruin. Bethel means the house of God. Well, look at Jesus. He comes from a land, heaven, leaves his homeland to a land unknown, foreign to him, comes to this land, and he sets up between ruin, Ai, and Bethel. So what Jesus does is he becomes the bridge between ruin and the house of God. And he's the bridge that we cross over. So Abram it becomes like a type of Christ. But Melchizedek seems to be so much more than a type. In the Old Testament, there's also something that theologians call theophanies or Christophanies, which are appearances of God or Christ into the world. Now this should be blowing your mind completely. So which one is Melchizedek? Well, we might be able to figure it out if we look at his name. It just keeps going. Watch this. So, Melchizedek, he's a, he's a king. The name of, the, just the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, a description of Jesus. Also, did you notice the place where he's a king of? It's Salem, 
which means peace. So he's also the king of peace, a description of Jesus. But look at this even. This is likely, Salem is likely the city of Jerusalem before it is named Jerusalem. This is the eternal city of God. So could it be that the king of the hidden land of Eden has just come and met with Abram? Could it be that this eternal city where Melchizedek is from, could it be him coming from that place? It seems that he is so much more than a type. Now we don't have, like this is so mysterious. To even have a word that would describe it pretty much doesn't exist. And it really seems though like the Son of God has just opened up the door of Eden and come in. And only he could do it because he has no beginning or end. He is he has always been so he could just pass through the sword that is keeping us out back in Genesis 3. So you say, wait a minute. This seems way too much. Can God actually do this? Well, we have a God who gets involved with creation. He doesn't stay distant. I mean, you think about this. If God himself was writing a story, he said, man, I'm going to write a great story. It would be so cool for me to write this mysterious figure in. All the while, this mysterious figure is doing all this work in the background where we can't see. But as he's doing it, what, what's happening is there's, there's a story being built around him where one day we find out that he's actually this long awaited king who would rescue all of us. That would make for a great story. And the thing is, God is smart. And he's wired us, tuned your heart up in such a way that you would long for this story to be true. So your heart has been tuned to search for this king that's like Melchizedek. But your heart is also sick. Just like Adam and Eve, who wanted to be out from underneath the rule of a king, so we are the same way running to worship things that are less than God so watch so we can avoid God this is something we do all the time so what I want to do now I want to backtrack I want to go back to before Abram has met with Melchizedek and I want to look at his journey towards meeting Melchizedek because we have the same journey as we are out to meet the king so here's what Abram did he went out before before he went out he was worshiping false gods he was in rebellion uh, and then he hears the call of God in the midst of his rebellion, not when he got his life all fixed up, but in the midst of his rebellion, he hears God call out to him to go out into the unknown and then eventually meet the king. The same is true for me, the same is true for you. In our rebellion, we hear this call from God to leave our old life behind, go out into the unknown to eventually meet the king. So this is our second point, your path to the king. So I want you to see that your journey is similar to Abraham as you're going to meet the king. So Abram, let's go back chapter 11. Abram is worshiping false gods. By the way, a great way to avoid a king is to find lesser kings that you can control so that you actually remain the king, but you get this, you, we all have this itch to worship something, so you get your itch fixed all the while you stay in complete control. And we have done the same thing. We're worshiping lesser gods so that we can stay in control. And we sacrifice to these lesser gods. If you chase success, you sacrifice to your goddess of success. If you chase money, same thing. We always sacrifice for what we worship. This is called idolatry. It doesn't have to be of a statue. So we're like Abram. We are worshiping false gods, and then we hear the call of God to go out into the unknown. Now we're up to chapter 12. So God calls you the same way. 
And you, like Abram, find yourself in this land that's between Ai, which means ruin, and Bethel and the house of God. Basically, you live in this tension now where two worlds are fighting over you hardcore. And so that's where, Beth, that's where Abram is set up. And then something happens in the land that he's in. A famine strikes. So he has to leave, and he has to go out to Egypt. And, and apparently on the way, he decides, because apparently his wife Sarai is this beautiful woman, and he thinks that those Egyptians are going to kill him if they see how beautiful his wife, because they're going to want her to be not his, but theirs. And so watch what Abram does. Abram basically pimps out his wife so that he could get in good standing with the Egyptians. They end up, Pharaoh ends up marrying Sarai, his wife, and the world gets very difficult for Pharaoh because he's doing something that God doesn't want until finally Pharaoh realizes that Abram has given his wife for him to marry, and Pharaoh says to Abram, what have you done to me? you got to get out of here. And so he's kicked out of Egypt, and at this point, he's got his nephew Lot with him and Sarai, and they're rich. they got a lot of money, they got a lot, a lot of livestock, and they got a lot of herdsmen. So a fight, but they go to this land, and a fight breaks out between Lot and Abram's herdsmen. They're all fighting, and so they have to part ways. Lot, Abram's nephew, gets caught up with the wrong crowd in Sodom. And then... There's this massive war that happens between nine kingdoms, starting to sound like Game of Thrones type stuff. Lot gets captured, and he's brought out. Abram hears of this, so he sends 318 of his men to go chase down and rescue Lot, eventually rescuing Lot. And it's after all of that, that was all very important because it's after all of that that he finally meets the mysterious king. Now, why do I tell you all of that? Well... Here's the point. Oftentimes the road to discovering the king is a very difficult road. And it involves tons of failures along the way. So Abram's faith continues to be tested along the way. And the same is true for us. We hear the call of God to leave. And as we head off to, to Eden, the tests begin. And each test makes us stronger and wiser and more focused on reaching the lost land of Eden and more reliant upon the God that we are depending on to get us through it all. Your path to Eden does not leave you away, lead you away from a battle, but right into one. Abram's path was not pretty. He failed along the way. He even pimps out his wife along the way. This is a horrible thing that he does. And your life right now to Eden is going to be a battle. And like Abram, you're going to sin along the way. Just don't pimp out your wife. And each test reveals to you, causes you to make a decision. Will I depend more on God through this? Or will I find sinful ways to get myself through this? So Abram finds a sinful way. Abram pimps out his wife in order for him to get through the difficulty that he's in. Now we find out later in this battle that God was fighting for Abram in this battle when he's rescuing Lot. So first time, he fails. He doesn't depend on God to get him out of Egypt. He depends on his wife. Second time, he depends on God in the battle. The point is you've got to stop fighting sin alone because you have a God who fights for you. And it's in this stepping out in faith that Abram discovers this mysterious king 
comes out of nowhere and he does something. He gives Abram a blessing. And that's true for you. So this is our third point, the gift of the king. God promises Abram before he leaves to give him a land, a family, and a blessing. Melchizedek gives him this blessing. This is why we might start even more considering this is actually the Christ. And he is a king of the city of peace and righteousness. He's in the eternal city of God. But here's what I want you to see. Abram doesn't reach the kingdom of God first. He meets the king first. Many people love the idea of the kingdom of God, but not the idea of having a king. But notice, you have to first meet the king before you get to the kingdom. And where the king is, there his kingdom is. You must first crown him as your king before you get the kingdom. Picture God right now calling you out into the unknown. He blesses you just enough to get you to leave your homeland. And then as you're going, you go through these trials, and he blesses you enough to get through the trial. He's fighting for you. And then, after he fights for you, you finally meet the king and receive a greater blessing. So, so God is just blessing you and blessing you and blessing you. He's blessing you to get you to go to him. He's blessing you as he's fighting for you. And he's blessing you in that finally you get the intimacy of meeting face-to-face -face with the king. It's like each blessing is leading you out. Each blessing is leading you through a trial. In fact, sometimes the trial is a blessing because the trial is causing you to rely on God like you never have before. And then after the trial, you find yourself face-to-face -face with God, meeting with him a way that you never have before. And that is a blessing because God is the greatest blessing you could ever receive. So Abram heard the call, left it all behind, following out to the city of Eden. And it's through that, through the difficulties, that he meets with God. You know, it's funny. We tend to run from our difficulties. But the irony is that God and the eternal city is on the other side of our difficulties. He is at the same time with us through the difficulties, but we have more intimacy with him after the difficulties are over. And God set you out on this adventure, and he's put you right smack between Ai and Bethel, meaning the ruin in the house of God. We are caught in between two worlds. And what we have to realize is that there are two worlds that are fighting for us. There is more going on than what meets the eye. In the Old Testament, these stories, while they're true, they are also pointing us to spiritual realities of what is happening now. There is a battle happening over your soul right now between the world of ruin and the house of God. And the battle rages on and on, behind the scenes, unnoticed. And you're being pulled by two worlds. What do you need more than anything when you're being pulled by two worlds? You need God. And this is, we're coming to our fourth point. Once you meet God, and you know Him more and more, you find yourself acting in such a way that is irresponsibly sacrificial. This is our fourth point, your response to the king. So look at Abram. His response is with love, worship, and sacrifice. So look at what Abraham does. He tithes. Now what is a tithe? A tithe is an act of worship. This is giving of 10% of whatever you get. First 10% is God's. It doesn't mean you spend all of your money and whatever is left over you give to God. What Abram does is the first of it. 
It goes to God first before everything. And this seems so strange and abstract because you could use your money for your family, for yourself, your house, your car. You could use it on something that seems like it's providing something for you. But Abram doesn't. He just gives it away. Why would he do that? Because he's met the king. The king became personal to him, no longer an abstract idea. That's why Abram makes the sacrifice. The same way a dude would spend way too much money on a wedding ring, on a diamond, to propose to his soon-to-be wife, the same way, I mean, it's love that's causing him to do this. There is no greater thing to spend your time, your money, and your talents on than love. And your love and your worship and your sacrifice are all tied into one. 10% is nothing when it comes to love and worship. If you, if, I mean, if, you, if you're just wrestling with it and you ask yourself, well, can I do this? And if you can't, you have to ask yourself, have you actually met the king? Now, there's something particular that has caused Abram to do this, and I want you to see what Abram has discovered. Abram has discovered the problem it creates if you are both a priest and a king. And Abram, I think, has also seen the solution of what happens to the problem of being both priest and king. So let's look at this. This is our last point, the priest king. Remember the king brings judgment and the priest brings forgiveness. The cop is also the lawyer. The judge is also the social worker advocating for the person. The same one who is to bring wrath is also trying to fight for that person to not get wrath. And here we go. We're, we're, coming, to the, we're coming to the climax. We're coming to the ending here. This is impossible. For the wrath to come to be put on someone, but then that same person is fighting for the wrath to not go on that person. It's impossible unless the king priest can bring wrath down on himself. That is exactly what Jesus does here. He is the king who brings justice and mercy. He is the cop and the social worker. He is the hero who becomes the victim. And only he can do it. Why? Because he's from the Malchizedekian priesthood, meaning he has no beginning or no end. He, death cannot take him down. He's the only one who can live through the tortures of sin and death and continue on breathing. When we meet Christ, we find him holding a knife at us, and then he turns it in on himself. The judgment for sin comes down on him. See, he is the hero who is the king. Who can, he's the only one who can give us the world we long for. But he's the only one who's also the priest who buys our forgiveness into that world. And inside of death that he must pass through, he unlocks the door inside of death that leads us into the lost city of Eden. And when you meet the king who's also the priest... You become like him. You are a cop who is an advocate. That is exactly what George Floyd needed when he was underneath the knee of that cop. He needed a cop who was also a priest to him. Do you know why he called out for his mother? Because in that moment, he knew 
he needed an advocate more than any other time in his life. And so he called out for the greatest advocate he knew, his mother. And that is exactly what we have in Christ, an advocate, a priest, who's also the king. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would introduce us to this great king, that we would see him as this king who is also the priest, who did everything it took to get us to him, who was our advocate. When death was after us, he came. So God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.